Are you a mom launching kids into adulthood? If so, you need to know about my Empty Nest Mom Retreat. It is the gathering for moms who have at least one child over the age of 18 or who have launched them all and have a full empty nest. September 27th through the 29th are the dates, and Cedar Lake Retreat Center in Cedar Lake, Indiana is the place. You can fly into Chicago airports and drive to Cedar Lake in a little over an hour. Come join me. Best value registration is available through May 27th, and space is limited to just 100 moms, so don't delay. Check out jillsavage.org slash retreat to register today. If I'm going to share what is a very vulnerable and deeply painful part of my heart of what I've lived through and somebody tell me, no, that didn't happen. I have to put up a boundary for that. And so it's very rare that I write on race, but that night I felt compelled to share my story. And there were people who went, ouch, that hurts. But there were far too many people who said, no, that could not have happened to you. You're listening to the No More Perfect Podcast, where we talk about strengthening the relationships that mean the most to you. I'm Jill Savage, and I live in normal Illinois. I'm committed to talking honestly about the messy, less than perfect, but normal stuff of life. I'm so glad you've joined me. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the No More Perfect Podcast. You know, several years ago, my daughter and I wrote a book called Better Together. It's a book about building your mom tribe, the women you hang with, the ones that you care for and they care for you. And in it, I talk about sharing our stories. And I really introduced the concept that we all have stories. We have our life story, our faith story, and our experience stories. So today, I'm inviting two women in my tribe to share their stories, specifically their experience stories. They've both been on my podcast before, sharing their expertise. My friend Susan C. did a podcast episode titled, How to Increase Your Energy. It was episode 41. She's a speaker, she's a podcast host, and a mom coach extraordinaire. And my friend Barb Roos did an episode titled, When Life Feels Like More Than You Can Handle. That was episode seven. Barb is also a speaker, author, and a literary agent. Welcome back to the No More Perfect podcast, Barb and Susan. Hey, Jill. Hey there. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. I love that we sound, I love that we sound a little bit formal when just a few minutes ago we were all cutting up. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we're trying to put on our, um, we're for real about this thing hat. Like we're not <laughs> playing around anymore. <laughs> well, the truth is we were supposed to start this interview um, 30 minutes ago and we've just been having girl talk for 30 minutes almost. <laughs> not oh quite gosh. 30 minutes, but close, you know, and, but isn't that, that's the way it should be with friendships. Like we can't get together and do something without talking about all the things and our kids and what's going on mm -hmm. and all of that. So I'm so glad to have both of you here and um, to have the opportunity uh, to have this conversation with you guys, which we haven't really 
said what we're going to talk about, but it comes out of a conversation we had three years ago. Um, and when we were together, it was when we were together. I'm pretty sure. Was it two years ago? Yes, it was three no, years ago. about right. Yeah. yeah. June yeah, of 2019. It might have actually been, now that I think about it, it might have been two years ago because it might have been right before things shut down because Tabitha was living with us. So I have a, um, so we had an intern, uh, Tabitha, that was uh, living with us at the time. Yeah, it was 2019. And so, and yes, and now Tabitha is with me. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> yes, Tabitha is now working for you, Barb. Oh my goodness! So, Barb, um, just so people can get to know your voice, tell people where you live, um, uh, where you're coming to this interview from. Well, I love the fact that we get to have this conversation with everyone today. I am here in the Northwest Ohio area, and so grateful that technology allows me to be connected to Jill and Susan on a regular basis. And uh, I'm an empty nest mom of three kids. And whenever I can, I love reading great books and uh, eating dessert before my meal, because honestly, I want to get full. (laughs) I love dessert first. I always um, served dessert first on April Fool's Day when my kids were growing up. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like I would just act like it was normal. Like we'd sit down to the dinner table and I would just have dessert sitting in their place. (laughs) They just loved that. That is so cool. That's a great idea. I, I know somebody's going to be like, I'm totally going to do that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, for sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, this like airs, I think, right like five days after April Fool's Day, but they'll catch it for next year. So, Susan, tell us a little bit about you and where you're hailing from and what your world is filled with. Uh, I am in Austin, Texas. I am. Married to my hubby, who's my college sweetheart, and we are the parents of seven children. And I'm a homeschool mom of 20 years, going into 21. My gosh, we're still going. And um, my days are full of uh, complexity. There we go. I think that's the best way to describe mom life, especially mom life (laughs) after the past two years. So um, I can switch anywhere between having conversations on trigonometry to did you put on deodorant? Um, (laughs) Whose sock is this in the living room? What do you mean you didn't order the groceries? So what should we eat? Cereal? Okay, that's fine. Again, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and back to, you know, let me help you edit that paper. So, you know, all over the place. And then coaching a client in between. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. You are a busy woman. And just the thought of seven kids. I mean, I know my five kids made me tired, but I can't even, I just, I just can't even, Susan. oh you amazed me you amazed me i'm over here as an empty nest parent going i don't know if i could keep kids alive anymore like i I just give it to you all seriously i do not i it's as if all of those skills have been erased from my brain yes you know what i i get that because I was around some little ones recently and just their energy wore me out. I was just watching mm-hmm. them and I thought, I need a nap. That is a lot of energy. How did I do that before? That used to be me. So I get it. Like those those skills, they fade. <laughs> and God gives us what we need when we need it. And guess what, Barb? You and I don't need that right now. Jesus name, amen. That's right. And even when my grandkids come, you know, God gives it to me for about 24 hours and then they go home and it's all good. 
my goodness. Well, back to uh, three years ago um, when we had uh, an initial organic conversation. Uh, we were all together for uh, actually for a variety of reasons. Susan, you and I were coming together because we were like brainstorming the possibility of doing some ministry together to moms. Um, Tabitha came with me. We, we went to a beautiful retreat center and, um, mm-hmm. and Tabitha was living with us at the time. So Tabitha came with me and, um, just to enjoy some quiet. And then Barb, who was within driving distance said, well, if you guys are going to be together, I'm coming. A uh, life had been hard for you, Barb, in that season. And you just needed a little bit of a getaway. We were all there for several days. And over dinner one night, we started having a conversation. And for, mm-hmm. um, and, and one of the things I, I think I, I might've commented on, I definitely thought because I'm an internal processor, I don't know if I said it or if I thought it. Uh, it was a unique experience for me because Tabitha, Barb, and Susan were all black and I was white. So I was the minority in that setting. And I think we got to talking about a time where I spoke at an all black conference and how that was a different experience for me, the culture. In fact, the ladies kept, it was a huge, huge black conference. I want to say there were maybe 2000 women there and I was the only white woman. I was their keynote speaker, which I felt so honored um, to be asked to, to do that. But they kept saying, they kept introducing me and saying, um, hey, this is so-and-so, and she's a first lady. I was like, oh, oh, thank you. Oh, nice. Nice to meet you. And then another one. And she's a first lady, too. And they kept referring like like I would want to know that. But I was like, finally, I pulled my hostess aside and I was like, I'm sorry. I don't know what a first lady is. And she said, it's a pastor's wife. And I was like, and she's like, you're a first lady. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so culturally, welcome. I know. I was like, I have never heard of that in my life. But now I understand. So I think I shared that with you guys. And then we just started mm-hmm. talking. We just started sharing stories. Mm-hmm. Susan, you shared a story. And honestly, it was transformative for me. It was a story about um, your son going to a birthday party, being invited to an after dark, I think it was a Nerf gun birthday party. And you really had reservations about him being able to go to that. Talk about that just a little bit, because it was so eye-opening to me about your experience as a Black mother and the lens that you had to look through as you considered that invitation. Yeah, I think this story will highlight that having a black son is just not, um, he's just like everybody else except his skin is different, but that his entire lived experience is different. Uh, his perspective, his the expectations upon him, all of that is different. So yes, having one son in the midst of six sisters, I was consistently looking for ways to give him experiences where he could be with the boys, where he could have yeah, I bet. all of the testosterone. We greet each other. 
with not handshakes or hugs like females, but we like attack each other and roll around in the ground. And like, I just wanted him to experience the normalcy of who he is and how God created him. So when he started finding uh, boyfriend groups where he could just be with other boys and not have to, you know, consider his sisters or consider the other girls around, I just relished those opportunities for him. So when the Nerf gun thing became a thing among the boy posse and everybody wanted to have their guns and the more realistic they could look, the more they felt great about, look at mine and, you know, look at the size of mine and I can hold this many bullets and all these, like they were just, you know, doing all their, you know, guy comparisons and pride and happiness. I just recognized that there was um, a challenge that my son uniquely had. Mm -hmm. So anytime it was not just birthday parties, it was not just after dark, it could be full sunlight. If they wanted to run around the neighborhood and hide behind cars and bushes and behind people's porches so that they could attack one another, I could not ever get with that game. I could not allow my son to run around with a realistic looking gun as he's hiding behind somebody's porch who does not know that he's going to be there, who will not appreciate that there's this darkly melanated child who's in their bushes with a gun hiding and crouching down. They won't necessarily think that's fun or game or delightful in any way, or just, you know, boys being boys. They're going to think there's a problem and I need to address this. And if he's somewhere out of my sight, I cannot protect him. And that just was alarming to me. So Mm -hmm. it was disappointing to have to give him that reality conversation when I'm already recognizing that these are rare opportunities for him. Yeah, And it was even more hurtful for us to be in a, a group of people who treated my reaction as if it was just me being hovering, me maybe not overreacting, uh, me um, making up that this is a possibility. And I'm just like, I, I don't have the energy to try to convince you that this is a reality. And uh, I have to also spend a lot of energy with my son to help him just accept that, I'm sorry, son, you have a different lived experience than the other boys in this group. And this is what it means to be Black in America. Mm. And I remember when you shared that, that just really, like, I had never considered that. Um, and to be fair, um, as a woman, as a white woman in America, you know, I would have a little bit of concern about boys white boys hiding in bushes with a a gun that looks a lot alike, but the amount of risk is so much higher. What I realized when you shared that, Susan, is the amount of risk was so much higher because of your son's skin color if he was doing the same thing. So there's still risk for my son to do that Mm -hmm. um, to some degree, Mm -hmm. But the amount of risk was way higher. And you had to take that risk into consideration as you had to consider this invitation. Um, That Mm -hmm. just made me, it made me stop. I haven't had to worry about it to the degree that you've had to worry about. I've not even had to worry about it at all in many settings. And what it did is it made me go on my own journey. 
And then, of course, the the world became affected by this in so many ways. I picked up a book. Um, it was called Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race uh, by Debbie Irving. Um, not a Christian book, um, but um, it was an excellent read for me um, that caused me to just want to understand more and to understand better and to hear more stories. And so ultimately, I reached out to you guys and said, okay, you know, we've had more conversations, just the three of us without a microphone. Um, But let's, Mm -hmm. let's do a episode on the podcast, where my whole purpose for this is I just want to invite you guys to share your stories as black women in America, as black mothers, to give others the opportunity to just hear. And let me tell you something that, um, just speaking to our audience for a moment, for those of you that are listening, um, when Mark and I do our marriage coaching, we um, one of the things that we run into with couples is that couples listen to defend, they listen to argue, they listen to debate, but they don't listen to understand. And one of the best ways to change a marriage is to learn how to listen to understand. Save questions, save your perspective for another conversation. Right now, you're going to listen to understand. And so as you listen to um, Barb and Susan uh, share some of their stories, I ask that you have a mindset of listening to understand um, and to not to debate, not to argue, not to say, well, but, but to truly listen to understand because all of our experiences are our experiences and they're very real. So Susan and Barb, that's ultimately, um, you know, what I'd love for you to do today is to share your stories. Uh, Susan, you shared with me a story about a time when you were in college. Would you mind starting with that? Because that was very, very eye-opening for me as well. Uh, First, Jill, let me just say the context you just set for this was huge. And I Mm -hmm. appreciate that. And I see Barb nodding. Thank you for saying that. Uh, There's a reason I had shared with you before we recorded uh, that I don't have these conversations often anymore because I'm not interested in the debate. I'm not interested in the defensiveness that's thrown at me or the attacks that come my way. They are Mm. hurtful. They are exhausting. They cause um, a cynicism in me to rise up that I am trying to keep my heart tender before God. And I just said, you know what? These conversations do not lead to places that are good. So I reserve them for other people who understand, which is typically Mm. my black sisters and my black brothers. They get me and we all nod and agree and we get it and we move on. But I don't typically have these conversations with white people anymore because of that very thing. Mm. It's, uh, It's just too much. It's just too painful. And it's like, why? (laughs) I just Mm -hmm. move on. So I appreciate you setting that context. Mm -hmm. It was a really huge move. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, In college, uh, as a psychology major, I got my degree in psychology. And one of my upper level class opportunities was that we were to conduct um, an experiment 
in our community where we could create a scenario and then act it out and see what is the reaction that we get. So my team and I decided to go to a used car dealership and we assigned different team members the responsibility to choose one car on the lot and to go on and get the price, um, what financing options were available, and just talk to that salesman to see, you know, basically what's, how are we treated and what's the reaction? And, you know, the rest of us were to stand back and kind of time, how long did it take for you to get served? And what was the the different details that were shared with you in that exchange? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we sent uh, one of our team members onto the lot. She chose a car. Uh, She was served quickly. Uh, She was given a really good price. Uh, She was given financing options uh, without any paperwork. Just, you know, here's what we could do for you with this car to make sure you can drive off the lot. This was a white team member. Gotcha. A white female team member Mm -hmm. who went on. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went on after her to the exact same car. Um, with, you know, we gave enough of a break where he could not tell that we were together, but it wasn't like a separate day. It was the same day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went on with the exact same car, much higher price quoted. No financing options would be available because of the age of the car and because of all the different details that, you know, what they've got going on on the lot. They just couldn't offer me that. And it was not you know, giving me lots of time nor details. I was having to keep asking questions to get information on the car. He was not just free flowing all the details for me. I Mm. noticed that and just, you know, walked off, shared with my team members the conversation. We made our notes. We -hmm. gave another break in time, sent another team member out to go back to the same car and was not quoted the best price the female was, but was still quoted a better price than I was and financing options were available and all these things. And so we came back and of course the team is all looking at each other because I think there was some skeptics on my team who thought Mm. this is not, not in our town. We're sure that this probably exists somewhere because you know, college students tend to be open that this is a possibility, but maybe not here because look at our college campus. It's very diverse. It's multicultural. Look at our classroom and then look at our group. Like this is not going to be a thing. <laughs> so I I could feel the uh, awkward silence of noticing that, <clears throat> wow, like that, that just happened right here before us. Like we all can see that Susan got a much higher price quoted. She was not allowed to have any financing options. And like, he just really wasn't sharing much about the car, like as if he would just love for her to just move on. Like he'd love to Mm. be available for another worthy client who might be on the lot that he doesn't want to miss that opportunity talking to me. So it it was eye opening for them. But for me, it was just like, yeah, like this is how this works. Mm. I'm sure, especially seeing those experiences side by side was um, very, very eye opening for those on on that team. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Barb, what stories come to your mind? What What is um, an experience that you have had um, that comes to your mind that would just be good for us to know and understand? Well, it's actually one that um, we hadn't talked about as we were planning the episode, but um, it actually had come to me. And so I'm just going to, to go with it. Um, yeah. It was actually a, a more recent experience. Uh, it was uh, October of 2019. And I had um, 
I had a Honda Pilot that we lovingly referred to as the Palace. Uh, I'd owned it for many, <laughs> many years. Uh, well, it just, we just, it was beloved. Um, got it in, I mean, had it for years, had over 300,000 miles on it. I'd owned it since 36,000 miles. And so uh, it was getting to the end of life and I was just having some trouble with it. And um, the night before I was to record a teaching DVD for my next Bible study, um, was this 20, no, it was 2020 because it was during the pandemic. Um, so it was October 2020. Um, I had gone to the store to pick up some last minute items about 7.30 that night. So I'm in the Honda Pilot at the store. And when I come out, I think I was at Michael's um, and I was in my town. I live in a mid-sized city, about 200,000 people. And uh, in the Michael's is in an area around the mall. And so it's a well-lit area. It's a high traffic area. I was right at an intersection one of the busiest intersections in my city. So there's mm-hmm. lots of cars, lots of activity. And so I go to get in my car and it won't start. Now it's 7.30 mm-hmm. at night, it's dark. Um, now I'm a speaker and author. So the next day I'm going to be all glammed up with hair and makeup. But it's 7.30 the night before, <laughs> uh, I had on a sweatshirt, sweatpants, no makeup. I had a mask on and my hair was in a ponytail. And, um, I, and I had a sweatshirt on with a hood, a hoodie. So uh, I was standing there and I was like, dang it, my car is not going to start. So the way that the evening unfolds, um, I thought I was parked right underneath a streetlight. And I knew that me being a black woman at 730 at night in a sweatshirt with a hoodie and a mask on, I knew it was going to be a challenge for me to get help. But I wanted to figure out how to set, set things up so that I felt I looked less threatening. Now, I'm a female Mm. in the dark, and I'm trying to figure out how to be less threatening so I can get help with my car. So I pop the hood, and 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 I'm standing under the streetlight so that people can see me, or the parking lot light. And so the first person comes out of the store, and it was a woman, and she glances over at me, and I'm standing by my car with the hood up in a relaxed position. And I'm about 5'10", so I know even that's going to be scary. But she looks my way and doesn't even says a word, go gets in her car. Another woman comes out a few minutes later. She is parked next to me and doesn't even look my way, gets in her car and drives off. A gentleman comes out of the store. And so um, I knew that it was going to be like this. um, And I knew that it was just going to just not feel great. But I was like, okay, Barb, this is just, this is the way it is. Well, I ended up giving a call to a friend of mine. She and her husband live about two miles away from the mall. And so she just said, I'm sending Andy right over. Now, Andy is a six foot four white guy. He's an elementary school teacher. He and his daughter, uh, they hustle on over about five minutes later. When Andy came is when people stopped to ask if we needed help. Oh, wow. When Andy came. And um, there was eventually a black couple that parked next to me who got out and said, hey, are you okay? But um, that part, that part was hard enough But the toughest part was when I posted it on social media that night, and I simply shared my experience. And there were probably 350 or so comments on that thread. And there were far too many comments of people who said, you called that wrong, Barb. 
That's not what happened. They didn't stop because you were black. It was late at night. Women have to watch out for their safety. People didn't know who they are. And I'm like, wait a minute. I am a female who was alone in a parking lot with a car broken down. Who was the most vulnerable in that case? And like Susan, um, it's really hard for me to write. People ask me all the time, Barb, why don't you write more about race? But for me, uh, it's those moments when if I'm going to share what is a very vulnerable and deeply painful part of my heart of what I've lived through and somebody tell me, no, that didn't happen. Um, I, uh, that's a, I have to put up a boundary for that. And so it's very rare that I write on race, but that night I felt compelled to share my story. And there were people who went, ouch, that hurts. Um, but there were far too many people who said, no, that could not have happened to you. Mm, I'm sorry about that. I really am. I hate that. Even the side by side there, um, your experience of having no offers of help and then having the offers of help um, that had to be very, very real. It was. It, and there were a lot of folks who in the Facebook post, they said, Barb, we why didn't you call us? We would have helped you. And I appreciated the well-meaning heart of those folks. But that night, I was a random Black woman. I wasn't a speaker and author. I wasn't a literary agent. I wasn't a teaching pastor uh, at a large church. I was simply a Black woman, like other African-American women who are out there. And the question that I wanted people to consider for themselves was, who do we side, decide is worthy of help? Mm-hmm. And that's an important question for us to ask ourselves, to be really honest about what goes on in our head. So I think that part of it is even becoming more self-aware of the thoughts that go on inside of our head in moments like that. And that's, I tell you what, reading, reading the book uh, really caused me to examine some of, I would have said I wasn't prejudiced, but reading the book caused me to examine thoughts that I've had that I wasn't even aware of until somebody kind of put them into perspective for me. And that was really mm -hmm. helpful. I think what's great about that question, Barb, who do we decide is worthy of help? We could keep changing that word at the end. Who do we decide is worthy to purchase? Who do we think is worthy to hire? Who do we think is worthy to live next to? Who do we think is worthy to have over for dinner? Who do we think is worthy to lead in our church settings or in our community or in our nation? Who do we think is worthy? Like these are questions that we are answering through our actions every single day. And we can look at our bookshelves and say, do our bookshelves reflect the heart of God? Do our social media followings reflect the, the vast array of God's family? Do our neighborhoods, our communities, our organizations that we're a part of, and what ways in the way that we live and how we are selecting and choosing every single day, does that truly reflect that we say all lives matter. Mm -hmm. You know, something else that struck me as I wrote, as I read the book, 
almost 20 years ago, my husband and I adopted our son, Nikolai, from Russia. And when we were there, one of the things that struck us was that everywhere we went in Russia, everything was 50 years behind. So everything was because they had lived behind the Iron Curtain and the Iron Curtain shut them off to how the world was moving forward. And so technology was 50 years behind. Um, You know, we were in a shopping mall and I had to go to the bathroom and I went in and it was a, a hole in the floor, you know, a squatty potty um, in a shopping mall. Um, and, um, and so those, it was, it was like the, they had been shut off to the world and they were way behind. That was one of the things that struck me when I also read, um, waking up white is that, in essence, um, black families are like a century behind in family legacy, finances, education, those all of the things that have been a part of my family legacy for, a, uh, you know, however long we want to say that has been a shorter family legacy. And all of that has affected what gets also the stories that are passed down, the um, the the lens that your families see life through because of the legacy um, as well. And that was very, very eye opening to me. That goes back to one. Uh, I haven't written this blog post yet. Uh, Susan has heard me talk about it a little bit, but um, I'm going to write a blog post one of these days titled "Why There Are No Black Families at the Lake." Uh, because mm. uh, as when I travel and visit friends, like I enjoy going to lakes, especially when I have friends who have lake properties. And so for decades, I have been a guest of lovely friends, and uh, there are very few people, if any at the lake. It's usually just me. And the reason why I bring that up is because uh, many families who own either vacation properties or vacation homes, uh, those are often handed down from grandparents to parents to kids. And the way that that happens is there had to have been the ability at some point to build wealth. Now, a lot of times there have been accusations that, well, maybe Black people haven't worked as hard. And I go, really? Wait a minute. Uh, So you're telling me there are no Black people at the lake because they're just not working hard? It's because there have been systems in our country that for generations upon generations made it impossible for African-American families to sustain their families, much less build wealth. And one of the hard conversations we're having in our culture today and in churches today is recognizing that the laws have changed, but the systems have not. And so the things that we're seeing today are because of the long-term generational impact that the laws, and now the the hidden systems of left behind. And I know that's a hard conversation for a lot of people, but it is a reality that cannot be ignored. 
Susan, yeah. any other any other stories come to your mind um, of your experience? You had one when you were also in college. It was another college story. Um, and I remember that Waffle one was House. really imp- Waffle House. That was it. Oh, yeah. It was in the middle Waffle of the night. House. Yes. 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 Um, so I, my family is from the East Coast and I was going to college here in Texas. And um, I went home for spring break, excited to see family and have a, a break from campus. And actually a couple of friends from school had family in the area of my family. So um, trying to save money, we said, how about this? We will carpool back. We'll share gas expenses. We'll trade off driving uh, to not have to get a hotel. And we will just make it work and get on down the road and get back to school. So we hug our parents. We wave just to give another context. This is pre-cell phone era where everybody could reach anybody at any time. Like, no, this was when you wave, you say goodbye. And, you know, a day and a half, two days later, you call and say, we made it. We're back. And, you know, this in between is just travel. Mm-hmm. So we're driving uh, down the East Coast and uh, we finally get to this point where we should eat. And it's late. It's really late at night. And uh, one of those things that's always open is Waffle House. Mm-hmm. So we proceed to take an exit and go to Waffle House. And uh, when we pull up in the parking lot, we realize that it's fairly empty and it's late. So that makes sense. So we go in and we order our food. And as we're waiting for our food to arrive, uh, we notice that you can hear the door opening to the Waffle House because the little bell keeps Mm -hmm. timing each time someone comes through the door. And uh, it keeps timing and the place starts to fill up. So I look up to watch uh, some people walk by and the shirts, the t-shirts they're wearing on the back, there's a noose, there's a burning cross, there are hoods uh, displayed all across the shirts. They might've even had messages of wording. I wouldn't know. I cannot remember that part. I just remember recognizing that those were KKK shirts. And I looked at my friends who are also black, three black college students on the road in the middle of the night at who knows where, because we didn't write down what exit we just took. We don't really know where we are. We just stopped mm-hmm. to get some food. Mm-hmm. And I tried to very calmly say, do not turn around, but it's time to go now. So we're the only black people in here and the place has now filled up with, I don't know where they're coming from, but they've all got these shirts on. So I'll let you come to the conclusion of where they've been or what's on their minds. I I just put down money on the table that we are overpaying. We are over tipping. We don't need any kind of financial exchange. We just want out of here. And we try to calmly slip out of our booth and get to the car where um, we proceed to look out the back window to make sure we're not being followed. We're on the highway now where there's not much traffic because it's late and we're trying to assess if they come, what do we do? Mm. This is the conversation in the car. We don't have any way to contact anybody. So we don't really know what's coming up next because we don't travel this highway a lot. So we can't say at the next town, we're going to get off and go to the, we don't know where to go. There's no cell phones to call. And this is my lived experience. This is not me telling the story of my grandmother or my great grandmother or my great, great grandmother who have their own stories. 
Yes. Some of them much more horrific. But this is my story, my lived experience in my college experience. And this is one of the memories I have of spring break where my peers had all these wonderful fun stories of where they traveled and what they did. I'm afraid for my life and afraid for my life of my friends as we are feeling that in our lifetime, we're still being confronted by KKK. Mm. And what's interesting about Susan's story, like it just, it it gives me chills each time I hear it. Mm. It is that uh, for those of us who know Susan, she's not going to talk about this story every day, but it's a part of her lived experience. And then there are other experiences that are a part of her lived experience as well as mine. And so for everyone out there who has been confused or frustrated when they see marginalized groups rise up in anger at certain periods. It wasn't because people woke up one day and decided that they were going wild out. It's because there are all of these stories of things that happen. Susan and I have lots of stories that we didn't share today. And you multiply that times 13% of the American population And when there are moments in our American timeline where the injustice hits the tipping point, Mm -hmm. what you may see is the emotion of all of those moments come to the surface again. Mm -hmm. And the issue is, as Jill said, if if people do not hear and listen to stories, they're going to assume that... Uh, they're going to assume things that are not true when you see people protesting, when mm-hmm. in fact, it is just to give people, this is what it the truth looks like. When people mm-hmm. are not treated with dignity and respect, there are going to be times in our country's history where people are going to show what that looks like and feels like, and it's going to make everybody uncomfortable. Mm. So it's really the accumulated experiences. Uh, they they build on top of each other until it hits a breaking point of some form or something mm-hmm. happens um, like what we have mm-hmm. experienced in our country over the last few years. We've had multiple somethings happen that mm-hmm. then cause people to speak up, speak out. Yes. Well, that's more of a mass response. It's more of a mass response on an everyday level. I imagine many of your listeners may work with people who are African-American or other BIPOC cultures. And um, and there are often questions and confusion around, well, why does somebody react or respond that way? And without knowing someone's story, taking the time to find out and go, wait a minute, tell me about what's been hard about working here for you. My dad, Mm -hmm. he would have never said anything to anybody, but my dad, he showed up to work randomly when there were KKK signs on the front door of his his job. And he went to work every day. He wasn't going to post on social media about it. But there are all of these silent things that are happening in the lives of African-Americans and the the stress of that and the discouragement of that and the depression of that. It has an impact on mental health, has an impact on physical health. It has an impact on attitude. So 
even though we do see these big displays from time to time, like after Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Trevon Martin and all these, there is also the everyday experience where people are like, well, why do they act that way? Well, could it be because we should ask some questions to find out what's motivating that attitude Mm -hmm. or that behavior? It's really inviting people to share their stories, but then you have to make it safe for them to share their stories, um, which is um, thank you for sharing that is really the best response. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, Thank you for um, sharing your stories with me. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. Which I think is exactly what I, I think I did. I think I got it right um, three years ago when we sat down. Cause I think I said, thank you for sharing that with me like that. I appreciate hearing that story. Um, I don't know that I've always gotten it right in those opportunities, but I think I did that time. Um, and, and just being able to let that soak in and um, to hear people's stories. Mm-hmm. Thank you guys. Thank you for sharing your stories here and um, being willing to trust me with them. And I know it's a little scary. Um, we're trusting our listeners with them as well. And so for those of you that are listening, um, I just, uh, uh, you know, practice today. Um, even if you're, you know, getting ready to turn off this podcast to just say silently or aloud. Thank you, Barb and Susan, for sharing your stories. Those were important for me to hear. Well, this is um, Barb and Susan and Jill uh, signing off today. It's been a great opportunity to have important conversation. And honestly, may this be the start of conversations for you in the environments that you live in. And may you be a safe person for people to have those conversations with. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining me today on the No More Perfect Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and follow so you don't miss any future conversations. You can find the show notes and links to anything we talked about over on jillsavage.org slash podcast. I hang out on Facebook and Instagram and would love to connect with you there. You can find me under the name jillsavage.author. One more thing, we have three free ebooks that we'd love to give you. You can find them at jillsavage.org slash free. See you next week where we'll have another conversation about the real stuff of life and relationships.